Watch Together. I'm Josh. And I'm Kylie. And on today's episode, we talk about comeback movies. Kylie, we're here. We're back. We've done it. We're, it's been over a year since we have released an episode. But the Ducks Watch Together friends are back in action. I, I disagree. I don't think we're back in action. Oh, okay. We what? did not watch any of these together. Oh, oh. Um, we watched them in the same time frame <laughs> of a month. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> All right, friends. Well, we are excited to be back. As um, you probably noticed when we stopped releasing episodes after Scott Pilgrim, was Scott Pilgrim the last one released? Mm-hmm. Great. Um, that the pandemic got a, a wee bit overwhelming uh, for many of us. And um, I think it was just good that we took a little bit of a break. But now here we are on the other side, still recording on Zoom, at least as of now. Um, but we're, let's, let's talk about some movies again. Yeah, we have a new recording studio. It's all set up. Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> we just haven't gone there yet. Well, one of us is there. Great, yeah. It's lined with lots of pop vinyls, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, in the other room. Okay, we wouldn't okay. record right, in enough. the living fair room. Enough. We would record in the eatery. Now, when we're using that recording studio, do I need to bring Charlie so he's as similarly as annoying? Absolutely not. Charlie is out of the podcast. Oh no. Oh. Cut from the team. He's going to be so upset. I don't think he has a concept of it. Well, he knows when I'm not paying attention to him. That's at least certain. This will be a good experience for you to go to this recording studio because at some point, both of you will no longer be there at the apartment at the same time. It's true. Um, And I I am very worried about Charlie. I I am also worried about Charlie, more so specifically when Anne leaves, because I, over the last like two months, have been out of the house once or twice a week for several periods of time. He doesn't seem to care. However, Anne's gone to the office twice, and he just cries, so I'm a little worried about him. I guess you're going to have to start kicking out Anne out more often so that she can, yeah. he can prepare himself. <laughs> True story. All right, friends. Well, um, as we're coming back into doing a, a new podcast, um, we thought we would try a little bit of a new format. So with our format now, what we're going to attempt to do is we're going to pick a category each month, like this movie, uh, this month, as we are coming back for the first time in a long time, we figured we'd talk about comeback movies. Um, And we're going to talk about it. We're going to do a little bit of a free flowy kind of conversation. We'll talk about each movie a little bit. um, And then we're going to break that conversation up into a couple of parts. So this is part one of comeback movies. And then in a little bit, a couple weeks later, you're going to get part two of comeback movies as well. And we're going to probably experiment with the format. So if you have some thoughts or opinions, um, you should definitely let us know. No, keep it to yourself. I don't care. (laughs) Whoa, 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 hang on. We got to make sure that our listener 
we understand what their opinion is. I don't care about their opinion. Well, okay. I, I care. Tell me. Gosh, we are not Warner Brothers. We will not allow the fans to dictate that we create the Gallisher cut. Oh, is the Gallisher cut just like you cut out all the bits of the podcast? Is that? I'm is pretty that sure that that's what's happening already. <laughs> and I'm You're pretty like... okay with it. <laughs> You're like, Josh, have you listened back to the podcast ever? Like, it's just me. That's it. <laughs> so um, that's kind of what we're going to do. But please let us know. Um, we still have some ways to contact us and get a hold of us. Um, you know, it's been so long that I don't super remember all of the ways to contact us. Kelly, what's our website? Do you remember our website right now? <laughs> Friend of a friend podcast at squarespace.com. Hey, there it is. Friend of a friend podcast at squarespace.com. We'll say there. Leave a comment on the post of this episode right there as well. Um, yeah, we'll talk about more of that stuff a little bit later. So yeah. Um, the four movies that we are going to talk about today all center around the theme of a comeback movie. Um, Kylie, do you want to explain to the audience what we define a comeback movie as? Did, did we define a comeback movie? <laughs> well, okay, we did for like, I mean, maybe not define, but like, we, we definitely had a similar thought process-ish. People had to make a comeback. Yeah, yeah. Movies in which an actor involved needed to make a comeback for some reason. Well, I didn't, I, there was at one point where I thought about switching one of my picks to actually something totally different. Um, in which I was going to say, I was going to choose the movie Tangled by Disney. Uh-huh. Uh, and make the argument of like Tangle is the real comeback of Disney being like, okay, we can yep. make animated movies be successful. So it didn't necessarily have to be an an actor. I think we just chose actors because that's a lot, that was an easier thing to see. Yes. But Tangled is a good shout for like a studio making a comeback as well. I will also say that um in in the things i considered i considered doing um the thin red line by terrence malick because it had been like 15 plus years since he had made a movie and most of his relevant work is kind of after that period so i think it's it's interesting to see a, a director who takes that long of a break um but then i was like oh man terrence malick i don't think i want to jump back into this by doing Terrence Malick that's a little heavy um one that when I was doing research one that I kept seeing was George Miller with um Mad Max Fury Road and one of the reasons why I didn't count that one as one is because like he made a movie but like is George Miller gonna make another movie because like mm -hmm. more with a comeback it's kind of like their career continued after this but right George Miller it, it, George Miller's uh, Fury Road could be the bookend of his career, 
And I think that that would be a good bookend. Now he could continue to make films. I just don't think it's going to happen. Yeah, I would I would agree with that. I'm, I'd be surprised if we get a, another George Miller film, not for lack of trying, but for like, I think dude's in his 80s and he generally takes a bit to make a film. So, yeah. Did you leave? Oh, no, I just... <laughs> I was the end of the George Miller thought and didn't know if you had more. Oh, no. I no, okay. I said my piece. Um, unless he makes a like a fusion between Babe and Mad Max. Do we need more? Can we also get the Happy Feet penguins in there? Because no. I think I need some of those penguins. No. No. Did you see the second one? Yeah, I totally watched the second one too. It was it's it's a trip um i think that happy feet 2 is a weirder movie but i think happy feet 1 might be the better movie at least for me they're both strange and i love them but yeah you love them oh i genuinely love the happy feet movies at this point i um I don't know what's wrong with me, but uh, I maybe I just needed to needed them in my lives when I watched them. But uh, yeah, no, love the Happy Feet movies. Animation hurt the the animation of the penguins like hurts my soul. But the strangeness of everything else is is just I'm on board. Okay, we need we need to get off of this. <laughs> I. <laughs> I literally cannot comprehend this statement. Like, we just need to go. We just need to hard pass through this. We don't need to analyze the fact that Hugh Jackman's doing an Elvis impersonation and Nicole Kidman's doing a Marilyn Monroe impersonation and they're somehow a great couple together. Uh, Hugh Jackman plays his dad? Yeah, Hugh Jackman's his dad. And so George Miller's like, I'm going to get iconic Australian actors to do iconic American I- iconoclastic figures. Wow. What if we just stopped? I think film <laughs> died in 2008. When the, that, 2007? When that film I think out. it's seven. Yeah. I'm in eighth grade, so I had a 50-50. Yeah. Well, you know, listen, everyone, one of the great discoveries of quarantine is the Happy Feet franchise. Go discover that. You discovered that in quarantine? Yeah, no, I had never seen the Happy Feet franchise until I watched it while in quarantine. I don't think I was in an emotional place to, to be able to accept these penguins into my life until now. No. if it's helpful kylie oh go no, ahead it's not helpful okay anyways what films are we going to talk about all right so <laughs> the four films we are going to talk about today are destry rides again we're going to talk about uh john wick 
we're going to talk about Zodiac and we're going to talk about The Town. Um, these four films each feature a comeback in some way, shape or form. Um, and in this case, it happens to all be an actor in the film. And we're going to talk a little bit about uh, how and how the actor made the comeback a little bit or what, what the context for that was and then talk about the movies. So yeah, we're going to have hopefully a good time doing so. Yeah, here we go. Um, what was that, Kylie? All right, let's do this. Okay, uh, how and where do you want to start? Well, we could do it chronologically. We could do it reverse chronologically. We could do a your pick, my pick. There's a load of possibilities. Mm -hmm. Is there any of them that stands out as one that we want to jump in with first? No. Okay um well i guess let's go chronologically then we'll we'll go from oldest to newest okay so there will be a your part episode and a my part episode great perfect i didn't realize that's how that was but that is true listen i realize one of my movies is super old but the other one is from 2007 it's not that old however you went a bit you went up against me who didn't start watching movies till 2000 14. So you went to your classics by picking a 2010. I did. <laughs> I did. Yes. <laughs> you know, I came to a realization the other day that to normal people, they think like people at work, they think I'm like a cinephile. Okay. However, to real cinephiles, they probably think I'm a film bro. And I think that that's just the dichotomy of my life. I am going to, to say that I think the words cinephile and film bro are becoming synonyms of each other in the current film climate. Um, because I think that the word cinephile is, um, it's being, I think, given to a specific style of film fan who maybe would more identify with the film bro aesthetic as well. Oh, I watched The Godfather and so therefore I am a cinephile. <laughs> uh, you're only a cinephile if you've watched The Godfather part three, Kylie. I haven't even watched the second part yet, Josh. <laughs> <laughs> it's fair, it's fair. Um, I don't know, I think yeah there you go um well here we go let's jump in to 1939's destry rides again starring jimmy stewart and marlene dietrich um quick little backstory on how and why this movie got into our um our selection today. So we have actually covered back in our, our archives, we have a whole list of films from 1939. Um, and so this is another one that can slot right in there as well. 1939 being a really uh, kind of big and influential year in film and Hollywood kind of history. Uh, as I was searching, Kylie and I were like, oh, th this narrative around, um, 
comeback stories was dealing with a lot of actors, a lot of male actors. And so we wanted to try to find a female who would fit this category. And that brought me to the story that I know about of there's this article in 1938 that's posted in um, the Hollywood Reporter at the time. It's like basically like studios could take out ad space and print it as articles and like the Hollywood Reporter and Variety and Vanity Fair and all of those things like that. So they did this thing and they called it the box office poison of 1938 because the studios were tired of paying all of their big stars salaries and they specifically targeted actresses. There was a couple of actors in there as well, but they specifically tar targeted actresses that they were tired of working with and paying. And this includes lots of names that you are maybe familiar with in terms of classic Hollywood, including people like Mae West and Greta Garbo and Katherine Hepburn and Joan Crawford, to name a few. So I was like, aha, most of these people had careers after 1938. So I was like, okay, we, we got this. Like, there'll be something here we can cover. And then I was like, okay, what are the comeback films for these people after this article kind of took them out for six months to a year of being in terms of getting good work, which in the studio days, if you didn't have several films a year, you probably weren't all that popular in terms of mainstream. So I looked at Greta Garbo, and we already talked about Ninochka in that 1939 episode. I looked about Joan Crawford. We'd already talked about uh, the women in that episode. I looked at Catherine Hepburn, did the Philadelphia story, which is 1940. So I was like, okay, hopefully we got one here. And I came across Marlene Dietrich, who is an actress who I'm not the most familiar with her work. And so I was doing some research and realized, well, there's two of her films that I have seen. One of them is 1939's Destry Rides Again. And the other one is a 50s film. I think it's actually 59 um, called um, A Foreign Affair. And that's by Billy Wilder. And in between those two films, she doesn't have a lot of work, but what she does is she does a lot of work in America for getting people involved in making it be more of a real reality to get people involved with World War II. So she's from Germany and she was exiled from Germany when she wasn't interested in following following the Nazi party's ideas and ideals. And so she went to Hollywood um, in the early 30s and kind of lived there and then realized that, that what her job was as an actor was fading. So in 1939 comes around, she's already, she's already got this article calling her box office poison. And she realizes that her career as an actor is going to be short-lived because of the way women are treated in Hollywood, because of the way that just actors' careers go in general. It was just, she was putting two and two together. So she needed to get a comeback vehicle. So she did a popular genre, which is a Western. And then she, once this movie was a hit, she parlayed that success into doing a lot more things with the USO tours and helping Americans learn about Hitler and what he was doing. And she used her fame to then become an advocate for reasons why America should be involved with World War II. And that has some ups and downs. That's not totally a good thing in all those ways, but that's kind of one of the things that she used her comeback and her power to do. So much so that in the 50s, when this movie of foreign affair comes out it is actually about um this couple 
who is living in Germany and trying to fight against the Nazi regime during World War II and their their objectors to that as well and how that kind of affects their relationship and their status and things along those lines. Um, so I think that what's interesting about her comeback is, as compared to some of the other actors that we're gonna talk about in specific, is her comeback, um, she uses that power not necessarily in the film industry, well, she does keep working, but she uses it to try to help do, um, in her eyes, what is some good in helping her country break away from the Nazi regime. She's also in that Nuremberg, the Nuremberg the trials trial, or judgment. I think it's the judgment at Nuremberg. Yeah, yeah, she's in that too. Um, so as you're saying this, because that's, that I looked at her filmography and I went, yep, these are a lot of movies I haven't seen. And then Nur- the Nuremberg one I had seen in college. Mm-hmm. And so I was like, ah, she's the lady in that. Um, but that was the only film of hers I had seen. I had not heard of, heard of this woman. Um, I actually haven't heard mo- of most of her films either. Mm-hmm. So when you're like, she makes a comeback, I was like, cool. I, be- <laughs> I believe you. <laughs> yeah yeah so it, yeah it's it's a little bit of a different context than how some of the other actors that we'll talk about is and but like it is she's able to I would say the person that's probably the most closest to like her acting status today is somebody like George Clooney like George Clooney's an actor we know him to be an actor but like I don't know he makes like one movie every other year or so and mostly spends time doing advocacy work and having a tequila brand or something uh so yeah that's probably the the, like closest comp to what Marlena Dietrich did with her career I think so uh I think George Clooney is someone I need to explore as a director oh as a director (laughs) I think that's the next best I think that's the next answer is this your thing? You just like take actors who have like weird directing careers and, and explore them? Well, yeah, but like they have to be people who are more known as being an actor than a director. Like, like I don't want to do like Clint Eastwood because like right. at this point, also he has about a billion movies. But, like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm just, I'm trying to figure this out, Josh. I'm going to tell you, I think, I think Robert Redford should be on your list at some point. Okay, that's fair. I want broken, destroyed people. And as I stated, Robert Redford seems pretty <laughs> together from what I have seen. Maybe you'll just have to do some exploring. <sighs> All right. Invest- investigative journal- journaling. <laughs> You've done a lot of investigative journalism on Ben Affleck, which we'll get to later. <laughs> All right. Um, let's talk specifically about Destry Rides again. Um, so, Kylie, initial overall thoughts on Destry Rides again. Um, you know, there was... Okay, so, like... The plot, a little bit elusive to me. Mm-hmm. I understand that there is a plot. I understand parts of the plot. But for the most part, um, I was kind of like, I don't 
know what's going on, but there are some fun set pieces. And I guess that's what matters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I, I think that, I mean, it's a night, it, it is a 1939 movie. And so it comes with the 1939 um, societal views, which mm-hmm. are going to be what they are. Um, we could, we can sit here and we can judge them and that, but there's nothing that we're going to be able to change about that. And right. So, um, there, I, I think that the, the film is a quick hour and a half. Um, mm-hmm. There is something that I don't like about this movie, okay. very specifically, and it has to do with Jimmy Stewart's character. Um, where I thought that there was actually something very smart that they were going to go with and something very different. And then they pull their hand back and I was a little bit dissatisfied with that. Ooh, I think we may be on a similar page with this. Go for it. Well, so Jimmy Stewart's character is like, I'm going to explain the plot as far as I know. (laughs) So like, I'm pretty sure they're in this town that's a bad town it not the town but it is not a great town and so like there's uh there's a saloon and uh the hostess of the saloon has a boyfriend who i think killed the sheriff and jimmy stewart's gonna come and solve the mystery as a deputy Yes. And he's like, hey, I, my dad was shot in the back, so I don't use guns. And I was like, oh, okay. We're, we got something like a little bit different about this lead character of the Western. And then by the end, he gives up on that hope and dream. And first he starts by throwing a Mazeltov cocktail at people, and then he shoots someone. Yeah. yeah. And I was like, True. oh, so you don't actually believe in this. You just... That is also one of my uh, one of my my disappointments in the movie because I agree with you that I do like that Jimmy Stewart's character is set up as this kind of I wouldn't say nonviolent but also he doesn't like guns and that as you say is a a unique thing in westerns and really in I don't know American cinema in its totality. Um, and so I like that that element is there and that at the very least, I think what, while from my, from our perspective now, I wish the film would have just continued that all the way through and been like, great, he's going to win the day without, without guns. Um, I think that at least the small step in the right direction is he believes that until the film says that there's no other option than to start blowing stuff up and shooting things, Um, which is a disappointment, absolutely is a disappointment. But um, I think in the ways of small steps and progression, there's at least something there to, to, to latch on to. Yeah. Um, as I was thinking about the film later on, I was kind of like, the, the film, something that I was worried about, the film doesn't hammer in the idea of like, oh man, he was foolish for not wanting to use a gun, which I think is also 
um, hmm. a positive note. However, yeah. like at the end, he also doesn't seem, uh, you know, his character's a little bit, it has, is always just like kind of quiet and um, always seems just a little bit uncomfortable in his surrounding. And at the hmm. end, I was wondering if they were going to do a scene where he has like remorse for shooting using a gun, but there wasn't anything like that. And so at the end with his character, I was kind of like, so like, where do you stand now, buddy? Like, mm -hmm. do you still believe in your no gun um, politics and trying to uh, serve the law without violence? Or have you kind of turned a little bit more towards the norm? And yeah. Th that's not something that's made entirely clear in the film. Yeah, I think that's a good question that the film leaves you with. And I don't necessarily think it's uh, intentional. I think they're just like, movie's over. And then now you'll have to think with it. Yeah, I think that's a great question. Um, I think on the whole, uh, Destry Rides Again is- Is this I, a sequel I, to Destry Rides like, before? <laughs> it is not a sequel. Um, though, uh, the title would make you think so. It, that's that's Ju that's Jimmy Stewart's character's name, right? Is Destry? Yes. Okay. Yeah. The first time I heard it, I thought his name was Thomas Jefferson, <laughs> and I was like, "Oh no!" I <laughs> think his name is Thomas Jefferson Destry. I think. That's oh, his name. so I'm not crazy. No, you're not. Absolutely not. Yeah, I think he's, I think literally his character's name is Thomas Jefferson Destry Jr. Because he's Destry Jr., which would make me think that that's also his father's name. <laughs> so Destry Rides Again is not a sequel. It is actually based on a book of the same name. And it is Destry Rides Again because, as Skyler mentioned, he's avenging his father's death in those ways. Let I me mean, not avenging the throw word, but like his father was a sheriff, he's a sheriff, here comes another destry. He's carrying the legacy. Yeah, that's what it that's what I'm going for. Huh, um is he a, he's a deputy because the sheriff got killed and then they get this random guy to be the sheriff. And yeah, they get as he calls himself the town drunk to be the sheriff. Um, um can I can I I I don't know what the villain's plan is in this film. <laughs> Is, I don't really, I don't either. There's a shot of a, there's two, two shots of what the first time is a farm that is being attacked by some folks, and some bad folks, I'm going to assume. And there's a family on the farm trying to defend their farm. And then there's another shot where there's a cattle drive. <laughs> And I think the villain has something to do. And I'm pretty sure the villain is uh, Marlon Dietrich's boyfriend. I'm pretty yes. sure that that's the case. Yes. <laughs> um, so uh, something that is helpful for, for, for my understanding of the plot and things there, Destry Rides Again is actually a really foundational story structure for many Westerns in the future, including Blazing Saddles. Um, so if you happen to have seen Blazing Saddles as well, um, it has the same plot structure and many other Westerns continue this plot, plot structure. So one of the reasons why the film carries on and is, is considered to be um, a pretty classic and historic film is that this idea that there's this rough and tumble town, which in this case is set up by Marlene Dietrich and her boyfriend who are running this crooked card game and they, and they kill a dude. Um, 
And then, so then a Wait, new- Wait, they kill that guy at the beginning? Yeah, that guy's, that's who they're trying to, to find. Um, well, okay, so they're trying, okay. Okay. But they kill the sheriff, right? Yes, they also killed the sheriff. Yeah. But the sheriff is not the same guy in the card game. Correct. I, th- I believe correct, yes. The guy in the card <laughs> game owns some land that they want. Um, so basically, it is the Western plot, the, the kind of... Rango has a really similar plot as well, um, where, like, moralistic guy comes to town and wants to... is made sheriff or deputy and then uh needs to take out the the people in charge of the town who are actually trying to buy up the land of the town for nefarious economic means um yeah and then save the day in a shootout (sighs) so (laughs) yeah okay um you you kept giving examples which i'm sure is helpful to some people in this world i know i was like okay i'm trying to like westerns that are popular that also use this plot (laughs) here are the westerns i have logged on letterbox okay great let's go for it the revenant Uh uh-huh oh okay weird but yes eight Uh uh-huh sure Buster Scruggs. Uh-huh. Hell or High Water. Great. The 2010 True Grit. Okay. The First Cow. Yeah, Bum- Western. What? I said, yeah, Western. Yeah, yes, yeah. Really a Western, Josh. They're in the wild, wild west. Great. My favorite film of 2020 is a Western. Great. Bone Tomahawk. Uh-huh. The Sisters Brothers. Oh, that Western. Mm-hmm. The 2016 Magnificent Seven. Smag Seven, of course. Stagecoach. Uh-huh. The Good, the Bad, the Weird. Ooh, I, a movie I want to see. I've also seen The Good, the Bad, the Ugly. That's just not on here. But right. all I remember of that movie is the three-way standoff at the end, which I, I is probably a very iconic scene it is a very iconic scene yes yeah that's probably the one to remember yes it's part of it's part of a trilogy right yeah it's the man with no name trilogy is fistful of dollars one of those mm-hmm. Ooh, I'm so we've great. got two of them do you know the third mm, the color of money oh yeah absolutely <laughs> it's uh so it's a fistful of dollars uh the good the bad and the ugly and for a few more dollars a few more dollars uh, Jane yeah. got a gun. Uh huh. And the kid from 2019. The kid. Uh, you. It's about um, Ethan Hawke playing a sheriff trying to capture Billy the Kid, as played by Dane DeHaan. Oh, great. Okay, I think that that sounds good. That sounds uh, solid. I, let me say something. Directed by Vincent D'Onofrio. Let me say something. Oh. Okay, sorry. You say your thing. Go for Not it. Not Dane DeHaan's worst performance. Yeah, no, that's that's probably yeah. Um, you want broken men who make act who are actors who make movies? Maybe go down that Vincent D'Onofrio path. I've already seen all of his films. He has one. Okay, wait. He didn't also direct Bug. I thought he directed that. Okay, never mind. Yeah. 
Oh, wait, I have to remove a filter. I'm so sorry. Uh, he uh, did Don't Go in the Woods, which is an 83-minute film from 2012. Uh-huh. And then he has a 30-minute called uh, Five Minutes, Mr. Wells. Okay, well, not as exciting as I thought it would be. Um, so, Destry Rides Again not only creates the this, like, kind of plot that's there, it's also credited as being one of the first, like, hybrid forms of a blockbuster, meaning, like, there are lots of large set pieces that make it an action movie. It's a Western because of its setting. It's a it's, musical. It's a musical. It's a comedy. Um, like, there it's a are... Romance? It's Maybe. a romance. So in terms of a lot of looking at how our modern society works with blockbusters, when we present a blockbuster, it's usually a mishmash of a couple of genres put together um, rather than being a singular genre piece. And Destry Rides Again is foundational in that because it's one of the first movies to not only do that, but do it successfully. So this is the, I think this is the highest grossing film of 1939. Um, and so, well, really? that's not the wind. That's not Gone with the Wind. It's the oh. highest that's not Gone with the Wind. <laughs> it, it even beat like Wizard of Oz. Oh, Wizard of Oz wasn't a success until it yeah. was. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And then it's it's probably, yeah, I think that those are kind of its big legacy is its legacy that it has on storytelling and structure and with the Western genre. And then in terms of that genre mashing there. Also, Jimmy Stewart's a pretty newer actor at this point. Um, he's been around and doing things, but this is one of his first big breakouts um, before heading into, I think he's kind of gets, he gets known this year for this and, and Mr. Smith goes to Washington or the two kind of like films that work together that break him out as a star. Well, it's also, from what I know of um, of Jimmy Smith, this is Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart. Jimmy Stewart. God. Um, to me, it was kind of like a little bit jarring because it was, he had some like action-y moments and I was like, <laughs> no, Jimmy Stewart is supposed <laughs> to be in a wheelchair taking pictures or he's supposed to be on the Senate floor arguing. <laughs> For the rights of people. I don't understand why he's over here trying. Or he's chilling, having a conversation with an imaginary rabbit. Like, that's, that's what he does. Is he in Harvey? He's the lead of Harvey, yeah. But he's not Harvey. No, he's not Harvey, yeah. He's not the title character. You but yeah, no, yeah, you are right. This does stand a little bit as an action-y outlier in Stewart's career. Stewart does become known later in his career for westerns um but he's more so playing the like veteran kind of older smarter guy who's going to take on the young punk kind of western things as well so yeah um on the whole i think for being a 30s western i mean it i think in terms of holding up as a movie um, I like this movie quite a bit and I would maybe recommend something like Destry Rides Again to someone interested in old westerns more than something like Stagecoach whereas Stagecoach I look at and is like this is the foundation of like John Wayne and the career and like 
what a Western is and should be in terms of the classic definition of a Western, Destry Rides again is fun and it's a good time. And I think it's more accessible to, to modern audiences because the problematic elements of Destry are a lot less. They're there, but there just seem to be a lot less than something like Stagecoach or other Westerns that deal specifically with relationships towards uh, the indigenous people of America. The action is also a lot more um, dispersed in this film than it is with yeah. Stagecoach because like, I, I mean, there there's a, there's a parade of women with brooms getting ready to beat up some men and I was like oh yeah that was a really uh, yeah thank you for reminding me of that that's a really big moment in history too because it was like one of the it's weirdly for it being the 30s and where we are in film it's one of the first time where like women are allowed to come be a part of the action sequence as well well and then Frenchie who's Marlene Dietrich's character has an entire mm-hmm. scene where she's trying to kill Jimmy Stewart's character and I was like mm-hmm. yeah get it girl mm-hmm. absolutely and um, her two musical numbers are I, I enjoy both of them I think they're really they're good her character confuses me just a little bit um yeah. I don't really understand I guess I don't know why she likes Jimmy Stewart's character but at some point in the film she did and I was like all right that's great with me <laughs> I think that that's just kind of where you got to go with that. Um, I will I will agree with your sentence also. It is very much 30s writing in the way of like, I don't know, the two leads like each other, right? Go for it. Mm-hmm. But yeah. Cool. Um, I don't know if I have too much more to say about Destry Reds again. I definitely think if it pops up on a streaming service or you can find it at a library somewhere um go for it like definitely i think it's a good watch and a good entry point into some classic cinema if you're interested all right up next the film is the film from 2007 by a director who i don't like And that's why, and that's why the film bros will never accept me as a film bro. (laughs) They'll cast me to somewhere else. It's okay. It's why the non-film bros won't accept me because I'm like, ugh, he's a trash person. He's not like an awful, like cancelable trash person. I just, not a great person, but I like David Fincher. I'm sorry. He just doesn't always have the same politics as you. And not like politics necessarily as in like, when I say politics, I don't always mean like, um, like voting and things like right. that. Politics of like how you choose your we, life and your views and things. Yes, yeah, yeah. We don't agree on how to treat people. We are both directors, and we have a fundamental difference on how we work and treat with our actors. Is basically what I would say of that the difference between Fincher and I. Um, however, I like most of his movies, which. Goodness help me. Mank? Mank is fine. I don't love Mank. Why Mank has 10 Oscar nominations, I'll never know. It is in black and white. Why is it in black and white? Is it because it's supposed to be like Citizen Kane stuff? 
it's because it's yeah it's based around it's set in the 40s so i think they're trying to just create that aesthetic also it's really around um it's really based around citizen kane in those ways so it's mimicking that classic hollywood model as well so yes <sighs> okay um so, but the film we're talking about is Zodiac. Mm-hmm. And we're talking about the return of Brian Cox, Hold for Applause, the greatest actor of all time. Yes, of course, yes. Um, so... No, we're not why... talking about Brian Cox. <laughs> You're like, I'm cutting your bit off before you go too far. <laughs> uh, so, yes, who we are talking about, however is Robert Downey Jr. Uh, and his role here as Paul Avery, a reporter at the San Francisco Chronicle, who along with Jake Gyllenhaal and Mark Ruffalo get obsessed with figuring out who the Zodiac Killer is. Um, why I picked Zodiac, and I think that there is so the reason I picked Zodiac as the return or the comeback film for Robert Downey Jr. instead of Iron Man, because Iron Man is probably what most people would really kind of think on as like his big kind of return to cinema and his return to relevance as an actor. And I took that one step back and I said, I think a comeback film can mean a couple of different things. And Robert Downey Jr. does not get the role of Tony Stark without the role of Paul Avery. Um, I think in a lot of ways, when you watch Zodiac, you can see that they are very similar characters. Um, Both humans, indeed. Broken humans. (laughs) Yes, broken humans struggling with addiction in some way and obsession yeah absolutely um and so i think that zodiac as as a film for robert downey jr is a film that is successful it's i think more of um a box office hit and a mild critical hit when i was going through and doing some research in 2007 i was kind of surprised at the lack of awards and awards attention this film got i know 2007 is a really stacked year but I was just in 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 general kind of surprised that this movie didn't get a lot of awards attention. Is two thousand seven um, like there will be blood and the no country? No yes. country, yeah. I was gonna yeah. say the <laughs> the only thing that was coming to mind was flipping a coin, and I didn't want to say the coin flip movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, yes, it's that year as well. And there's when you kind of look through two thousand seven there's a lot of good films that come in and out that year. So, um, but yeah, so I thought that the idea of a comeback isn't necessarily always what is the biggest thing for you to come back from, but it might be sometimes a thing that opens that door and lets everyone know that you're ready to, to be back in that way. And, you know, not to go too into depth about where Robert Turner Jr.'s comeback is from, but he had a he was very successful in the 80s and the 90s and through the late 90s and the early 2000s he struggled with many different addiction problems and i think in the performances he gives in that era 
you can see that. And he has said those things out loud as well. Um, but he has been sober since around 2006, 2007 and moving forward with his career as well. And so his whole second act of being the most profitable actor in Hollywood comes after a real dark point in his life. Can I add, I'm, I'm not arguing that this is his comeback film, but I do, have, I do have a, uh, I do have a, 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 another point that I'd like to ask yeah. about and it's kiss, kiss, bang, bang. Mm-hmm. So, so why necess- so why Zodiac over kiss, kiss, bang, bang is, is kiss, kiss, bang, bang the same year or is it 2006? It's 2005. Oh, okay. So it's just, and and kiss, kiss, bang, bang. I, I, I agree that Zodiac is probably the thing that brings him back because Zodiac is actually, um, quite successful um kiss kiss bang bang is probably is a little bit more of a lower not lower it's a little bit less um it's not as successful yeah yeah Um, yes but i think i i always i just wonder like a kiss kiss bang bang also has um is probably also part of his comeback with all of this I agree that it's absolutely a part of the narrative as well. And I think that if you wanted to take it back to Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, I think that you easily could absolutely consider that to be the film that starts his comeback. Absolutely as well. I think for for me, the Zodiac point is a, a, a little bit more of a success in terms of at least box office and notoriety and things along those lines. Mm-hmm. And then I think that it's a more cleared path to getting to Tony Stark from here than it is from there. But I agree with you that when you're crafting the narrative of the RDJ comeback, you have to include Kiss Kiss Bang Bang on that list. A film that I also like, maybe the only Shane Black film that I actually like, but yeah. And I do think that there is, um, there's a similar, there's a similar narrative later on when we get to the town of like, what is the, what is, what is the first step to Ben Affleck's career return? Um, Mm -hmm. But I, it, it was more, it was something that um, when you said uh, Robert Downey Jr.'s uh, comeback, I didn't even think of Zodiac the first time. And part of that might be because there's so much going on with Zodiac. Um, I'm not like, ah, yes, that Robert Downey Jr. film, but rewatching it, I was like, I was like, he gets the pretty much like the first third of the movie. Mm-hmm. And yeah. then it kind of splits off after that. Um, yeah. It, and I agree with that as well as I was going to say. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it just been, it'd been a while since I saw Zodiac. And I was like, no, th- there is there is very clearly Robert Downey Jr. in this. Like this is very much his piece as well. Yeah, the film breaks off into thirds and those thirds I think break down into sections where Robert Downey Jr. is carrying the movie, sections where Mark Ruffalo is carrying the movie and sections to where um, Jake Gyllenhaal is carrying the movie. Absolutely. I mean, and I would... I would definitely say that the lead character of the film is Jake Gyllenhaal's character of Paul Graysmith, um, but they all have their own sections that they carry. And and one of the reasons why Jake Gyllenhaal's character is quote unquote the more of the protagonist is because this is the movie is based off of 
Robert Graysmith's book that he writes in real life. And mm -hmm. so like the book itself takes is partly from the point of view of Graysmith. And so he has to be part of the narrative. He's part of the narrative the entire time, even though it breaks off um, with, uh, with Ruffalo and Downey Jr. at different yeah. points. Yeah, absolutely. Um, jumping into the film itself a little bit, um, Zodiac is a movie that one of the reasons I like it, and I actually, in terms of Fincher's filmography and in terms of where it is, I think that it gets compared to Seven quite a bit just because it is similarly themed in people trying to solve or figure out a murder a serial killer murder case what i and like it's, about it's yeah. especially also they're similar in their ways of it's there's a lot of oh gosh i'm trying to use the correct words right. um but there's a lot of like dramatics um especially with the zodiac killer in the real world um there's such a dramatic thing about that and seven for I haven't I can't finish that movie I can't even get through like the first 15 minutes it's terrifying um yeah. but like there just seems like there's this flare of dramatics between those two films in particular when dealing with these cases and seven's not based on a real story but I think that that's also a very clear um comparison is the dramatics mm -hmm. between the two yeah villains. I yeah, and I would agree with that as well. And I think for me, why I actually prefer Zodiac is because um, Zodiac is not uh, to, I think, in pros and cons. And Kylie, you mentioned some cons while we were texting that I definitely will, will have you talk about as well, um, that it's not as interested in the killer and the, and the case itself. It is more interested in the people who are trying to solve it and it is interesting in that obsession and how that obsession leads to things like addiction and leads to things that take down your life and that controls you in a way that you may not even be aware of and i think that is the the nut that is at the core of Zodiac, which makes which makes me really like the film more than, like I said, films like Seven or other serial killer films that focus, I think, more on the like the killer themselves. Yeah, um, I mean the tag the tagline of the movie is "There's more than one way to lose your life to a killer," and I think that that's very clear with this because all three of these, um, all three of the characters that we follow, uh, due to their obsession or their involvement. Um, they their lives are completely like changed to mm -hmm. destroyed because of this yeah. and like they they each lose a piece of their life uh because of the because of their obsession and because of their involvement with everything yeah absolutely um i was joking with Anne when i was watching this movie because i was like okay i get why chloe Sauvignier leaves jake gyllenhaal but what what about this person on their on their first date when he's like obsessively trying to get a hold of Paul Gr or of uh, Paul Avery that she's like this guy 
this is the guy that I need in my life right now. I was like, oh no, what are you doing? Well, I think she's also, I think like, I think that it's the intrigue of like, the, I think it's like this case was very, was very like popularized in society. And I think that mm-hmm. at the very least, she was just interested to see how, where it goes and to like, even like, be a part of it quote unquote of what, right. or like getting to know the mystery before everyone else I think that that might be part of the intrigue but I I agree it's it's a little bit weird I also <laughs> it's a little bit weird because you know, I so I I've always known who Robert Graysmith is because I read the book before I saw the movie um, mm-hmm. but I was watching the movie and I was like, am I supposed to think that it might be Jake Gyllenhaal? Because I would, I feel like in any other movie, they would be like, oh, he eventually Robert Graysmith would be taken down to the, uh, like the precinct and interviewed and questioned because he like is obsessed with it and blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. So like, there was a point where I was kind of like, are we the audience supposed to like question Jake Gyllenhaal? Cause like he is, um, he is a bit of an oddity until you get to his piece of the movie where he kind of takes over. Um, he ju- he seems a little bit odd and strange. And I think that's pointed out early in the film as well too, because in conversations between um, Robert Downey Jr.'s character and the head of the San Francisco Chronicle, the, the lead editor, they're always like, yeah, weird guy, Boy Scout. And then they just kind of write him off, you know, as like, he's, he's strange in that way as well. I think that's a good call. Um, but then interestingly, because then they twist it to something that happens in real life, because the one of the three main characters who is considered to, you know, be somehow connected in some ways is the, is the police officer played by Mark Ruffalo who gets accused of writing some of the later letters and then it's eventually acquitted of those charges and that that's not true but like they, they, that suspicion moves to a different character mm-hmm. um i think that this this movie itself um is is a movie that really really works because of its three sections i think it has a very long runtime. it's i think it's over two and a half hours um it is a movie that moves because we're switching point of views often we're going from you know the paul avery character of robert and jr to mark ruffalo's cop character who is very different than the other two he's very traditional he is very by the book but he becomes very like obsessed with how that this is done and he has to he has to go through all these hoops to keep getting all this information and stuff like that and i think that his section of the movie the the mark ruffalo section of the movie is maybe the more active in terms of like tracing the case and things along those lines and giving the audience that information but it never drags in that way as well so that when you get to the third section with Jake Gyllenhaal you've got the puzzle pieces that you're trying to put them together and you can really feel his obsession because we're so late into the movie at this point to just be starting this third section um and I think that that really helps 
the the runtime and everything and then the structure of the scripts really helps kind of further this idea of obsession to ruining your life mm-hmm. <clears throat> yeah um and i think that the film is also layered with criticism um mm-hmm. of the media's input and how the media had a big hand in spreading hysteria and also like to an extent encouraging um mm-hmm. the the act of violence um and i do think that there is criticism on the police uh the police law enforcement at the time the people who were running all of the um investigation because essentially you're kind of introduced to three different departments and Mm -hmm. they're all in different districts and you would from our stance we would we would expect them to be working together however it feels like there isn't a lot of um, communication between them or a lot of like um, shared information which is which is part of like the frustration that Mark Ruffalo has and that we as the audience has and I think that I, I think that David Fincher does well with um, does a good job of create or of critiquing and having kind of yeah. real backlash for it. Yeah, and showing that like had the police force and units been able to put whatever sort of ego or competition they had aside they may have been able to actually catch um the the zodiac killer um i do think one of the another interesting thing that i I think about this movie is i think it's clear that fincher has a point of view on and maybe this is because gray smith does also um I, i'm not sure if this is true in the book but at least in the film i think it's clear that he has a point of view on who actually is the zodiac killer um and i think it's presented pretty clearly that it is the character played by john carroll lynch um, what was that arthur lee allen yeah arthur lee allen and um it, it seems to me that i i, I think that it is not necessarily the point of the movie to solve the case, but I think it does try to present a, an answer as well. And I think that's to try to give some sort of narrative satisfaction to the audience. Mm-hmm. Um, that is also how the book, um, who the book suspects the most mm-hmm. is Arthur Lee Allen. Yeah. Um, something that I do struggle with a little bit more with this film um, is that I don't think that Fincher like I don't think Fincher thinks Zodiac is cool I also don't necessarily think that Fincher um, does very does a good job with um, kind of presenting the victims in any way Um, it felt like the victims were kind of just pieces for him to um utilize in his in his narrative um and that was kind of just something a little bit a little difficult to watch this time around is that um it doesn't it doesn't and I don't I don't want to put words into Fincher's mouth but it to me it didn't feel like he found what happened to them um a tragedy 
Um, mm -hmm. I, it feels much more of a tragedy of what happens to Jake Gyllenhaal, um, Robert Downey Jr. and Mark Ruffalo. Um, and that was just kind of, that's kind of a criticism I have of this movie. Yeah. Um, and I, it even comes to a point of like, there was a point I was like, do they even say some of these people's names? Um, like he just doesn't seem to have any, he doesn't seem to have a lot of reverence for this. And that's, that is a difficult thing to deal with when you are telling a true crime story is that you need to remember that these are real people who lost their lives and it wasn't just their lives that were lost there are also the victims families and other things and so that's always an issue with true crime is um what are you doing the how how do you balance the mm -hmm. entertainment of the narrative with the real life complications and maybe this is because we live in a post once upon a time in Hollywood story. And I can't believe I'm saying this, but like Joe Quarant, Joe, not Joe. <laughs> Joe Tarantino. Quentin Tarantino seems to have so much reverence for um, his character of Sharon Tate um, and really gives us a chance to explore her and not just make her a victim. Um, and I'm yes. not Go ahead. I'm not saying that this film necessarily should have gone down that route of rewriting the history, but giving us a chance to be with these characters or to um, say something about them is always something that is difficult to balance with when you're telling a true crime story. Yes, and I think that um, I to add on to that, um, that is one of my issues with Fincher as a filmmaker on the whole, and a little bit of mentioning earlier and tying back here as well, is that Fincher is not a very humanistic director. He doesn't necessarily care about the, the human elements that are in his films and the people that are there, so much so that I think that I think another additional point to that being is that the scenes that we do see that involve the victims are the most stylized. They're the most um, made out to be sequences or they're the most cinematic in the way. A lot of the film is shot in ways of using angles and, and, and different takes and lenses to create just this kind of almost mundane sense of life stretching on as you continue to do this, which is a clear artistic choice for this film. But the sequences where we see the actual victims of um, and their, their crimes that are taking place, he's using a lot more Im imagery and using music to help tell a story and a lot more of the cinematic elements. And I think that that is it makes those scenes stand aside and we remember them, but it does, I think in some ways add to this trivialization of the, the victims because they are made to be just pieces of this artistic puzzle. Whereas our other characters are more of the, like we need to pay attention to their arcs. And yeah, I think Fincher kind of has this lack of human element about him. Even you can look at something like The Social Network and he's not interested in, in Mark Zuckerberg human. He's interested in the idea of what Zuckerberg was and will and, and became. Mm 
What would you say is his most human film? Weirdly, Mank. Um, and it's a film that I think he really, like the character of Herman Mankiewicz, he, and this might be because his father wrote the script, so it's already really personal, but he seems to really want to dive into Mank as a person. Interesting. Yeah. Do you I, have an answer for that? Well, no, I don't have, I mean, I've only seen... I've only seen the social network Gone Girl Fight Club and Zodiac. And I was going to say Gone Girl. Um, and I think most that's mostly because we have, one of the reasons why I would say Gone Girl is because we have the inner monologue of Rosamund Pike's character for quite a bit of that movie. And mm-hmm. so like, you do understand, you do get her as a character. And so, and Maybe yeah. she's not the most humanized character. However, like her, she feels a little bit more, um, a little bit more uh, fleshed out than, than than some of his other characters. Yeah, I would firmly agree with that. And I think that part of that is, is that it's based on a book and mm-hmm. it's based on, and Gillian Flynn co-wrote, co-wrote or wrote the script of Gone Girl with him yeah. as well. And I think her point of view is is there as well. Yeah. Yeah, I just, I remember that, I remember that there's a lot of inner, I think there's also inner monologue for Ben Affleck's character too. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't, I, that, that, that's one where I was just like, I understand these characters. Um, <laughs> I, I tried to watch seven. I can't get through. Um, the Curious Case of Benjamin Button looks boring, so I haven't tried that. Uh, interestingly enough, the game is the one that I want to watch, but mm-hmm. it was on Netflix. And every time I went to watch it on Netflix, it always said there is an error loading your movie. It didn't do this with any other movie, just the game. And I was like, curse you, Fincher. Oh, no. Oh, no. So someday. Someday, yes. I haven't seen. Have you seen Panic Room? Yeah, I've seen all. I've I've seen everything Fincher has made. It's been a bit since I've seen them all, but yeah, I've 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 seen them all. Have you ranked them? Oh, I don't know if I've ranked them. I I should. You need to rank them. Do you own all of them? No, I don't. I don't own the game. I don't own Panic Room. Um, I think that might be it. And then I don't. Bank because it's on Netflix. And then the girl with the dragon tattoo, I can't oh. imagine being heartfelt or warm in any sense. <laughs> no, as no, no. That, that book isn't. The no, original movie isn't. Uh, it, the movie poster looks cold and frigid. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I don't own ta- Dragon Tattoo either. I don't super care for Dragon Tattoo and Fight Club are the two of his films that I just I don't care for. Um, all right. And Alien 3. And Alien 3, yes. But you do Um, own that one. I do own that one, though. It's in a set. All right, any final thoughts on Zodiac the movie? Um, no. It's a pretty, it's a pretty good film. Um, I like how you were, I, I, I agree with you that I think that they, they follow Robert Graysmith's book and Robert Graysmith's conclusion in order to give a, a narrative um, 
to get to give you to give the audience some sense of like yeah that that's what it is um to me it's not actually that because in real life there has not been any justice or definitive like conclusion and so like Mm -hmm. that ending no to me no longer feels like it doesn't feel like, ah, you know, I feel satisfied. That satisfaction right. is gone, but I don't, I don't know if that, that was there the first time or not. Right. And if, if their theory that it is um, the person they think it is, that person passed away in, like the, in the early 90s. So yeah, there's no real resolution that can, that can happen. So right. Well, um, I think this is a good transition point to our part two as well. Um, so friends, if you enjoyed this conversation so far, uh, let us know in the comments. Uh, you can find us at friendofafriendpodcast.squarespace.com. You can find us at Ducks Watch Together on several platforms, but I don't think we've used them in a while. So maybe, maybe we'll start again. We'll give you some more, um, uh, contact information in the future as well. But for now, I think that wraps up part one. I've been Josh. Kylie. Quack, 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 quack. Why don't you want to ever talk about John Wick, Josh? <laughs> because I'm like, man, you know what's great? John Wick. It's good. It's so good. To be like, fair, I also don't particularly have a lot to say about Destry Rides again, other than like the backstory of it. Because like you're gonna you're gonna explain the plot to me because I got lost. <laughs> okay, great, perfect. All right. Because Josh, there are it's okay, so. So one of the issues with both Westerns and with black and white films is that I can never distinguish any of the male characters. <laughs> oh, they're all they all wear the same thing. Guys?